This is They Create Worlds, episode 164, Fallout. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hey, hello. Well, Alex, it's time to deal with the fallout of our last 163 episodes and just deal with it. We have a lot of fallout to clean up. I have some shovels, some radiation suits, and if we can make it to that vault, I'm sure we will be perfectly fine. Um, are those super mutants I see over there? That's what the shotguns are for, and all of these shells. Aha. Uh-huh. Yes, today we are turning our attention to the classic post-apocalyptic RPG from the late 1990s, Fallout. A game that I think still resonates today, not just because there are newer Fallout games, not just because it's become an established franchise, but because in a time when the RPG was facing a little bit of a problem, Fallout was one of several games that showed that the RPG could still be a vital genre at a time when the entire computer game industry was changing with all of this crazy stuff with polygonal graphics and real-time gameplay and first-person perspective and all of that. Fallout came along and showed that RPGs still had life in them and also was one of the crucial games that started moving really the entire industry, not just RPGs, in a more open-ended sandbox direction. So definitely a game worth our attention here at They Create Worlds. So we're not going into all of the crazy modern stuff with Fallout. We are focused purely on the original, number one, way back in the 90s. Exactly. Because, you know, yes, yes, you know, they're the newer fallouts from a completely different company. They have the big worlds, the fancy bells and whistles, the different perspectives, the new systems. But, you know, Jeffrey, at the end of the day, more never changes. Fallout is a big part of that. Well, I'm glad it never changes because I'm not sure if we're properly prepared. Absolutely. So if all of the other companies aren't responsible for creating Fallout, Who actually is the person who came up with the idea of, you know, I like the idea of post-apocalyptic, and I like the 1950s. (laughs) Let's marry the two and see what kind of horror baby we can make. (laughs) Well, there were a few different people that were really important in that process. This is a game that was not developed in a very systematic or very structured kind of way. Even in the industry of the early 1990s, which is when development on the game started, even though it wasn't released until 1997, even for the early 1990s when it was birthed, it had a very unusual and unstructured birth, even for these early days in the industry. Before getting into the people, though, which we will, because this was very much driven by a few very important individuals, It is important to take a brief look at the company where all of this unfolded, because all of this chaos probably couldn't have unfolded at an Electronic Arts or an Activision. Where it did unfold was at a little, though getting much bigger at the time, company by the name of Interplay Productions. Now, I'm not going to pull an accolade on this. I know this time we haven't done an Interplay episode yet. (laughs) So I won't be referring back to that time where we did an Interplay episode. We'll have to do one of those one of these days. We're not going to do a complete history of Interplay here. We will do an episode on that at some point, or two episodes, or 20 episodes, whatever. 
But we do need to talk a little bit about Interplay in order to understand how this project could have even gotten going. Interplay in its early days had a slogan that was by gamers for gamers. Those weren't just words, because this is a company that was really founded by people that really cared about games and who hired additional people that were heavily, heavily into playing games of all kinds and were translating this passion into a company. You may say, well, Alex, isn't that how a lot of these early companies started? And it's like, well, yes and no. Because you had a lot of companies that were founded by people interested in the programming challenge. You had a lot of companies that were founded by one person that was really into games and really tech-savvy, and another person that was the business guy that maybe wasn't the big gamer. At Interplay, that really all mixed together. It starts with the founder of the company, Brian Fargo. Brian Fargo is one of these rare individuals that walks in all social circles which is not an easy thing for a human being to do. As a high school student, he was a standout track star, and he was a football player. He was a jock. But he loved Tolkien. He loved Dungeons & Dragons. He played Dungeons & Dragons. He loved these computers that were coming out. He loved computer games. He loved arcade games. He was a true gamer. He was a nerd. But he was a jock and a nerd. He was comfortable walking both of these paths and intersecting with both of these circles. My biggest problem with this is, how does he have the time? <laughs> I mean, he's, he's a pretty smart guy. <laughs> what can I say? Well, I'm yeah, just thinking I know what from you're the saying. standpoint of sports. <laughs> I mean, you and I have been in high school. We've seen the amount of extra time that it takes for sport people, football players, yeah. track and field. They're spending two, three, four hours after class doing their training, doing their thing. Then they got homework. Then they got other stuff to do, other obligations, Yeah. let alone transit time. And then where in there do you have time <laughs> for sleep, eating, playing D&D, <laughs> playing an arcade game and actually getting good at it? Yeah. I hear you. And you know, uh, for those that, you know, at the time of this recording, the latest season, season four of Stranger Things has just dropped on Netflix. This is, doesn't get into giant spoiler material, so don't worry. For those of you that may still be watching, one of the kind of subplots or one of the character development plots of it is that one of the kids, Lucas, is straddling this line because he's joined the basketball team and he's trying to fit in with the basketball jocks, but he's one of the kids, one of the nerds, and you know is in the D&D group and everything, and he can't do it. He can't straddle these worlds effectively, and one of the sub-threads of the season is how he's trying and failing to navigate that. It really is remarkable that Brian Fargo spoke both of these languages, and he was just one of these rare individuals. He got himself a computer early. One of his buddies, Michael Cranford, and him made a game together, just an adventure game. He learned a little programming, though he was not primarily a tech guy. Like He could dabble a little bit in basic. Making anything much beyond an adventure game was something that he felt was kind of beyond him. He was interested in RPGs like Ultima and Wizardry, but he didn't feel he could code one. He and Michael Cranford did this uh, little adventure game together. It was one of these games where, you know, they just took it to the local store in a Ziploc baggie and put it on the pegboard, and they sold like five of them. After that, he created a game a little more ambitious called Demon Forge and actually founded his own little company, not Interplay but founded his own little company, Saber Software, to try to sell it, and was actually calling up computer stores and getting it on more than just his local computer store shelves. And it sold a few units, but he was kind of in debt. 
But he did attract the attention of some Stanford grads that were founding their own software company, Boone Software. They bought out his company, which was just a fancy way of saying, hey, we'll pay off your debts that you accrued making your own game if you come work for us as a development director. So he's like, sure. Then he worked at Boone for a little bit, and things kind of went south there. There was a lot of infighting, even some disagreement on whether they should even be in (laughs) computer games at all. So he and three other people ended up leaving there, and in 1983, they founded Interplay Productions. Interplay, by gamers for gamers, was involved in a few different games, a few different genres in the 80s, so they got particular notice for their RPGs, and first and foremost amongst those was another collaboration between Fargo and his old high school buddy Michael Cranford, The Bard's Tale, which of course we have talked about before. The game that kind of took the wizardry style of RPG and brought it into a more modern age, modern for mid-1980s, which meant full color and filled-in graphics, not just wireframes, and, uh, you know, actual sound, stuff that the wizardry people, as we talked about in our Surtech episode, had kind of fallen behind in doing anything with as the 1980s went on. Published through Electronic Arts, at this point Interplay was a developer, not a publisher, so EA published it. And then as a follow-on, not as a sequel, I mean, they did sequels, they did a second Bard's Tale, a third Bard's Tale, Bard's Tale construction set even, but as a follow-on in the sense of building out on the success that they had in RPGs here, they did a collaboration with one of the very early tabletop pen and paper RPG companies, Flying Buffalo, which had a game system called Mercenary Spies and Private Eyes. They entered into a collaboration with uh, the principals there, Ken St. Andre, uh, Michael Stackpool, who later became a very notable author of Star Wars books, and Liz Danforth on creating a game that was kind of adapted from their Mercenary Spies and Private Eye system. After initially tinkering around with kind of a Cold War, Red Dawn kind of scenario where the U.S. has been taken over by the Soviets and you're part of the resistance or something— They decided that that didn't sound that great, and so they pivoted into post-apocalyptic and ended up creating the game Wasteland. Wasteland is a game that deserves its own episode, which we'll probably give it someday, or at least a good chunk of an episode on Interplay itself, even if not its own episode. So we're not going to get into Wasteland here, but we have to mention it because Wasteland was one of the big influences on Fallout a little later on. There were a couple of things that kind of distinguished Wasteland from other games at the time. One of these is that it was almost completely open world. You were given, like, no guidance of where you should go. If you walked in this direction and the monsters killed you because they were too tough, well, you probably weren't meant to go there at the level you're at. I mean, it was just completely open world. Another thing is that it was very skills-based. It was still primarily a combat RPG as all RPGs in this day were, but because Mercenary Spies and Private Eyes was built on an elaborate skill system, so was Wasteland. So you were members of the Desert Rangers, kind of this special military or paramilitary force in this post-apocalyptic wasteland. Your different characters had different skills for all sorts of things, hand-to-hand combat, small arms, explosives, electronics, whatever, you know, different skill sets. As you leveled, you put points into these different skills, which was not a common thing at that time. I mean, now so many RPGs and everything are all point-based systems, but most computer RPGs back then were still very much in the D&D mold. And of course, D&D was not a skill point-based system. That made it stand out a little bit in its time. And then the other thing is that it was a game of moral ambiguity, because it's in this kind of harsh post-apocalyptic wasteland, and they didn't want it to be all clear-cut, black and white, good and evil, knowing that you're always making the right choices. They wanted it to be a kind of harsh world where you're doing what you need to survive. One of the very famous examples, the most famous example of this, 
is early on in the game, there's a boy who you can talk to and gives you a quest to find their lost dog. So fine, we'll accept the quest. Kid wants his dog. We'll find the dog. Well, when you track down the dog, it turns out the dog has gone rabid. So you have no choice but to kill the dog. Then if you go back and tell the the kid, yeah, okay, we found your dog, but we had to kill him. He'll be like, you killed my dog? And then he will follow you around the map, just continually talking about how you killed his dog. And you see, this game implemented a different kind of save system. You couldn't actually save and reload. It was just autosaves. So it's not like you could be like, oh, shoot, I don't want this kid following me around. I will reload the save from three hours ago, and we're just not going to do that. You couldn't do that. You could start the whole game over, obviously, but you couldn't reload. And so now you're stuck. And what do you do about this kid that's following you around? Do you kill the kid? You're able to. I mean, like physically in the game, you can kill the kid. But do you kill the kid? Do you become a child killer? Do you figure out a way to like just wound the kid, disable him and abandon him someplace where you never have to see him again? And how does that feel? I mean, it's just a game and it's a game of the mid 80s. So it's primitive graphics and whatnot. But still, I mean, psychologically, how does that make you feel? And so you're left with this almost no-win situation where there's no right answer with regards to the dog and the kid. That's another thing that was kind of famous or perhaps even infamous for, that we're going to get back to that ties directly into Fallout. Anyway, they did Wasteland. It did okay. It was published through EA again. It wasn't as big a hit as The Bard's Tale. You know, it did fine, certainly with the people that played it, loved it. I mean, it had a cult following. Then flash forward just a couple of years from Wasteland's release in 1988, and Interplay is really making a push to become a publisher now. They don't just want to develop their games and then sell them through other people. At the end of the 80s, the beginning of the 90s, Interplay really starts expanding like crazy. They're starting to uh, bring in more developers. They're starting to work with more contractors. They're starting to work with their own developers that they're going to publish rather than developing everything in-house. They uh, work with a little company called Silicon and Synapse, which after its collaborations with Interplay, which published its first games on the Super Nintendo, would change its name to Blizzard Entertainment and uh, start work on some real-time strategy game called Warcraft. That never went anywhere. Well, it's certainly not going much anywhere right now. (laughs) Yes, well, that's a completely different story. But yeah, I mean, uh, the company that became Blizzard was a development partner with Interplay. They got investment from MCA, the parent company of Universal at the time. They were moving to do more elaborate games. They were kind of getting in a little bit on the whole Sillywood thing. They weren't going full motion video game, but they were experimenting with doing more elaborate games with some full motion video mixed in and motion capture and all of this. They were publishing on computer platforms as well as console platforms. It created a kind of chaotic environment, quite frankly, at the company at the time, which again is important to setting the stage here for Fallout. Because I think it's only in a company like this that is ambitious and growing, but isn't quite growing fast enough to keep up where they want to be, that something like Fallout even happens. Because it's a game that really, like I said, there was no structure to the planning of it. It was largely being ignored by management for much of the development. I mean, management was aware of it. It's not like it was in hiding. It was just so insignificant that it was below anyone's radar in terms of keeping tabs on it or keeping track of what's going on with it most of the time. 
it was also one of the very early projects for many of the people that worked on it, either their first project or their first project, they were given a large role because the company was expanding and bringing on new people and promoting people. In fact, a lot of the people that worked on it started out at the company as testers because they had rapidly built up a testing department when they became a publisher. And then because they didn't have enough people to actually do all the jobs on the more ambitious games they were trying to make, then some of the more promising testers started becoming assistants to this person and that person. It's like, we need someone else on this. You, tester, you're good. Go over there and help them. From there, they grew more fully into development and design roles after that. So that's kind of what was happening at Interplay. Circa 1994, early 1994, which is when Fallout development begins. The genesis of Fallout and the beginning of Fallout, even though the final product had many hands that were very important to shaping it, the idea of doing this game in the first place, which wasn't Fallout yet, wasn't post-apocalyptic yet, wasn't really anything yet, but the vaguest idea of doing an RPG, started with an individual by the name of Tim Kaine. Tim Kaine was a nerd. The standard path for a lot of early developers, certainly developers in the 80s, but even developers in the early 1990s in this time period when the industry was still just a little bit Wild West. He was introduced to D&D when he was 14 years old. He was actually introduced by his mother, which is atypical. They lived in the Virginia area. His mother worked for like a defense contractor or a think tank or something like that. Some of the Navy people that she worked with were playing D&D, so she brought Tim along one day to join in this, and that was his first exposure to Dungeons & Dragons. He became instantly hooked. He was a big fan of role-playing games. At age of 16, he was one of several children, and there was kind of a tradition in his family that when one of the children turned 16, his mom would give that child a decent amount of money, a couple hundred bucks or something. I mean, not thousands. You know, would give them a a couple hundred bucks and be like, happy 16th birthday, go get something you like with this, go get something you want. So he bought an Atari 800. This was in the early 80s. The Atari 800 was still very state-of-the-art, still had some of the best graphics on the market. The Atari 800 was not well documented at first, and this was by design. I think we probably talked about this in an Atari episode, but Atari originally wanted to lock down that system very similar to how they were the only people putting out content on their video game consoles like the VCS. Unlike, say, Apple, they deliberately did not document the computer very well. Now, that changed after a couple of years when uh, new management in the computer division realized that was a huge mistake. At first, if you could figure out how to get the most out of an Atari 800, an Atari 8-bit computer, then you were a god, because nobody could really do that. And Tim Kaine was one of these people who became really good at using the various graphics modes available in the Atari 8-bit systems. So while he was still in high school, he ended up creating some graphics utilities for a company called Cybron. Not an important company, but it was just a little developer in the D.C. area, in Virginia, I think, but, you know, in in the D.C. area where he was, that was having trouble working with the graphics modes on the Atari 8-bit computers, so he created this graphics program to help them make their games. That impressed them enough that they contracted him, still a student, still a teenager, to uh, help create a game they were working on called Grand Slam Bridge for Electronic Arts, just a, a bridge game, the card game bridge. The money he made on that paid for college, so that was nice. After college, he decided to move on to graduate school in engineering. 
he went to graduate school at the University of California at Irvine, decided that graduate school life wasn't for him, and so started looking around for something else to do with his life. Irvine in Orange County is actually where Interplay was. I think he was looking for work with multiple companies, but he ended up applying to Interplay to do Bard's Tale construction set as a contractor, not as an employee at this point. He was a big fan of the Bard's Tale. I mean, he liked computer RPGs, so that was kind of cool. As he tells the story, the job of programming this game, it was between him and one other person. The question that got it for him, that got him the job instead of the other person, again, by gamers for gamers, they asked these two candidates in separate interviews, obviously, what Thaco was. (laughs) And the other programmer did not know what Thaco was. Tim Kaine did know what Thaco was. Now, Bardstale Construction Set was not a D&D game, so it did not use Thaco, uh, which for those of you that don't know, was no, a no, no, no. D&D. This had to be a secret. If you know what <laughs> Thaco is, you get bonus point. If you don't, you are not worthy of knowing what Thaco is. You can mention it, but you can't explain what Thaco is, because there's going to be someone else who's in an interview That's right. who needs to know what Thaco is, and if you don't legitimately know what Thaco is, you're not allowed <laughs> to know by us. Unless we do something with D&D, then, then we'll tell <laughs> Well, you there that. you go. Exactly. It'll be our little secret. But because he knew what that was, he got the job. He did a good enough job on Bard's Tale that he was hired into the company at that point and created a stock market investment game called Rags to Riches, which he wasn't really that thrilled about. <laughs> he knew nothing about the stock market. He knew nothing about business. At the same time, Interplay had the Lord of the Rings license as well and was creating a Lord of the Rings game. He really wanted to work on that. He and the programmer on that game tried to convince management to let them switch, but they were like, nah, you got to do your assigned games. He did the Rags to Riches game. You know, it was what it was, whatever. After that, he was doing kind of a bunch of scut work, quite frankly. I mean, he wasn't one of the main development talents of the company. He was the new guy. He was working on installers for various games. He was working on error correction stuff. He was doing a little work on sound drivers for Stonekeep, which was the big. RPG that they were working on at the time, the the RPG that was supposed to be life-changing and groundbreaking in a whole new way of making RPGs that never quite lived up to that hype. But that was the game that most of the talent at Interplay was working on at that time was Stonekeep. So he was doing some minor work on Stonekeep, as a lot of people were. Sounded like more middleware work. Yeah, a lot of it was middleware work, exactly, and utility work. At the same time he was doing this, he was starting to fool around with an engine for an RPG. Because he loved RPGs, he wanted to make an RPG. Now, at this point, we need to pause in the pure narrative story of Tim Kaine and go back and briefly touch again upon some of the wider by-gamers, for-gamers stuff going on at Interplay. This is a group of people, as I alluded to earlier in the episode, that loved playing games. So on about 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock in the evening, when the official workday was over, some people might be working long hours, might be crunching. Not everybody's day would be over, so some people may have just had a dinner break and then were going back to work. Other people were legitimately done with work at that time. They would all gather together in what they called the rec room. They would just play games, and we're not just talking video games. They would play geeky board games. They would play Dungeons and Dragons. They would play other RPGs. They would just play all of these games, some of them just over their dinner break before they went back to work, others who were done with work but wanted to stay anyway and take part in this. This was most of the people in the company doing this kind of thing. 
you know, some of the suits, people in marketing and whatnot, I mean, those weren't necessarily gamers, but the CEO of the company, Brian Fargo, was a true gamer. And the programmers, the designers, the artists, all of them, for the most part, were true gamers. So they just sit around and play. And, you know, everyone wanted to take part. Very few people wanted to run them. I know, Jeffrey, that you can sympathize with this because you've been a DM, a GM, whatever you want to call it in various uh, systems, off and on <laughs> a lot since high school. And I, I know a lot of the time what happens to get the ball rolling again is that someone will be like, you know, it's been a long time since we've done uh, an RPG together. That would be fun. But nobody actually wants to do it. And then Jeffrey will be like, OK, fine, I'll do another campaign. <laughs> It's not even so much like me volunteering. They all look at me with almost like puppy dog eyes. And then someone inevitably says, you know, I like that game you ran with X. Let's do something like that. Okay, you have three of my universes to pick from. Which one? Yep. I know that's something you can sympathize with, is everyone wants to be part of a role-playing campaign. Nobody wants to make a role-playing campaign. But Tim Kaine was one of these rare individuals that loved running these campaigns. And in fact, when he was in graduate school, he made it his mission to introduce his fellow graduate students to lots of different systems. And that's the other thing about Tim Kaine. He liked dabbling in everything, not just D&D, but all sorts of stuff on the market. At this time, in the early 1990s, when he was at Interplay, something that he was really into at that time was a little system called GURPS. I like GURPS. Absolutely. For those that don't know, GURPS is an acronym for the Generic Universal Role-Playing System. The concept behind GURPS, which is from Steve Jackson Games, uh, the same people that later brought us Munchkin, which is what they're more famous for today, but in this time period, GURPS was certainly their most famous product. The idea behind it was that it would be a system that was interchangeable enough that you could use it to run any kind of role-playing scenario you wanted. With other systems, you know, Dungeons and Dragons, it was dungeon crawls. It was sword and sorcery. That's all it was. Traveler was a science fiction RPG. It was specifically for that. TSR did a game called Gamma World. It was a post-apocalyptic game, but the rule set for that was specifically for that. GURPS was a rule set that could fit into any of those. You could run a fantasy game with it. You could run a contemporary real-life game. You could run a science fiction game. You could mash them all up, do a time travel game or a multiple dimensions game or a space game where you're planet hopping to different planets at different technology levels, and you could do that all together as well. It was really meant to simulate anything. And the way it did that, I mean, there are a lot of things that it did, but one of the key ways that it did that is it was in a system based entirely on building characters through skills and through character traits that were called advantages and disadvantages. Basically, you would build characters, or still do, because it's still a living system. GURPS 4th Edition still gets new supplements to this day. In GURPS, you build a character out of points, and you spend those points on skills and on advantages, which can be just that you have a really good memory, or they can be superpowers if you're, say, running a superhero campaign. I mean, they can be lots of things. You can get more points to put into your character by taking disadvantages or character traits that have a negative impact on your character's abilities. And by building your character in this way, you come up with this holistic idea of of who your character is and what they can do that fits into the particular kind of game that your game master wants to run. 
Tim Kaine just loved the flexibility of that because what Tim Kaine liked more than any other kind of RPG game is he liked these kind of games where anything could happen and where every time you play it, it could be a little different. Another game that they were playing a lot at the time uh, was another Steve Jackson Games product, a board game called Wiz War. This was another game that just had a lot of, you built it out kind of randomly, and it played out differently every time when you played it. These were the kinds of games that Tim Kaine loved. And so he was running a bunch of different GURPS games. He was running GURPS games in just about all of the genres. He was running, you know, GURPS Fantasy and GURPS Space and GURPS Time Travel. And he was doing what he called GURPS Everything, where basically people were allowed to pick stuff from every single GURPS source book and match it to their heart's content. And then he did another game that was called, I think, GURPS Nothing, which was they were only allowed to use the basic set, the basic rulebook and nothing else. And he was running all sorts of GURPS games. And he loved the fact that every game was a little different and that different players would approach the same scenarios in different ways. So sometimes, because there were so many people that wanted to be involved in these games, because everyone at the company were gamers. So he didn't just have like one static group. He would create a scenario, and then he might run multiple sets of characters, multiple sets of players through that exact same scenario. And it would play out very differently every time. Like there was one scenario where it was this kind of, you know, it was a pretty hard dungeon. And it's like one group got all the way through, but only escaped with their lives because they basically sacrificed the slowest member to the beast who stopped to eat the slowest member. And then the rest of them got away. There was another group that ran the same adventure that fell into infighting in the first room and ended up killing each other (laughs) and didn't advance. You know, there were just all of these different ways that it played out. And he really loved that which is also going to come into play in a big way in Fallout, which is why I'm going into such detail on this. Not to mention in GURPS, guns are very, very dangerous. Yes, they are. An AK-47 being shot at cultists leads to a lot of dead cultists. Yes, that's something we discovered one of the first times we dabbled in GURPS. The combat is brutal in GURPS by design. There are some action rule sets that you can use to make it a little less brutal, but the, the baseline combat in GURPS is brutal. And so another hallmark of GURPS is that straight-up combat is often not the answer in a GURPS game. Or if you do do combat, you better make sure you stack the deck in your favor. Exactly. That's where the whole cultist thing came up. They realized that, oh yeah, the AK-47 is great and helpful, but you better make sure that you're behind cover on top of a building aiming down at the cultist as opposed to you know kicking in the door and going hi cultist how are you feeling today (laughs) yeah that's another hallmark of gurps is that skill use and non-combat solutions are often just as if not more important than combat solutions and you can even see that being played out when we get further into fallout exactly that's all going to come back As he's starting to work on this RPG engine, because he's really into GURPS at the time, he decides that it should be a GURPS game. So he starts working on the engine, and he brings this idea to Brian Fargo. Fargo's been looking at licensing more and more things. That's kind of the phase where the company's in. And so Fargo decides that's fine. We'll get a GURPS license and go fool around with this. He technically had a producer on the project, but the producer was busy with lots of other things. And so the producer was basically like, you just do your own thing. And eventually, Tim Kaine just became the project leader. He wasn't like officially a producer at the company, but he was the leader of this project and he attended producer meetings as the head of this project. So he kind of became a producer in practice, even though he wasn't in job title. And for six months, it was just him, basically. 
doing this in his spare time, started in early 1994. It was officially sanctioned. It wasn't a secret, but it wasn't any kind of priority. It was just kind of him fooling around while he was doing other things. Everyone else was too busy on their other stuff to care. After about six months of getting this engine together, he was finally given two people, a scripter by the name of Jason Taylor and an artist by the name of Jason Anderson. Jason Anderson is the second kind of important person that enters the story of this game, because he's the main technical art guy on the entire project. He's not the lead artist, but he's the main technical art guy, which means in addition to doing some of the art himself, he was also the main guy that was getting all the art in the game and making sure it actually worked in the game and played nice. Jason Anderson was another D&D type, as a lot of these people were. He started playing it as a teenager. He also uh, played around with an Apple II as a teenager. Though, actually, as he got older, you know, he discovered music, presumably discovered girls. He kind of, as a lot of people do at this stage, he kind of put the computer aside. By the time he graduated high school, he was basically done with computers. He ended up doing a bunch of just odd jobs. I get the sense he didn't go to college, but he was working construction. He did garage door installation for a while. And then for about four years, he was just a retail employee at Toys R Us. During this time, he kind of re-picked up his interest in computer games and was starting to play some of the more modern computer games out there. Kind of got bit by that bug again. So in 1992, he bought himself a 386 and started learning how to do art on computers with some of the modern programs like 3D Studio and whatnot. So he was getting involved in kind of 3D art and whatnot as well. Ended up putting his name out there and doing contract graphics work for Interplay on a chess game, USCF Chess. He was hired into the company after that went well as a cleanup artist on Stonekeep, this big game that they're just throwing more and more bodies at. So a person that comes in after the art has been implemented and fixes problems with the art, cleanup artist. Once he got done with that, he was kind of a low man on the totem pole at this point. So he was assigned to Tim's new, we're not even sure what this is, RPG project. Tim doesn't even know what it is at this point. So he just kind of starts Jason doing some very generic art. Because he has no idea what this is. Literally. He knows he wants to use GURPS, but as we talked about, GURPS can be anything you want it to be. So he hasn't decided what kind of game it's going to be. He just starts having Jason do generic art assets like grass and trees, which is so funny because, of course, they end up doing a post-apocalyptic game set in a nuclear wasteland, which means there is no grass and there are no trees. So most of the early art, he gave him generic stuff because he figured, well, no matter what we decide to do, we can at least use grass and trees. And it's like, nope, that's a lie. (laughs) Unless there's a secret hidden place with just the grass and the trees, and it's heavily guarded at the last bastion of air. (laughs) Right. He has two Jasons. Uh, It was Tim and the two Jasons. He had Jason Anderson to do some art. He had Jason Taylor to do some scripting to get some basic stuff moving around in this game engine. The game engine had gone through some permutations. He looked at doing voxels. He looked at doing polygons and some of this more advanced 3D stuff that's coming in at the time. At the end of the day, he decides not to go that route, and he ends up coming up with a more isometric kind of engine. Now, it's not actually isometric, because isometric specifically refers to an image that I think is skewed 45 degrees, if I'm remembering correctly. And that's not actually what they did. They actually used perspective that's called Cavalier Oblique. 
to the layman, it's all isometric. You know, it's this pseudo 3D where things are slightly angled, slightly tilted so that there's depth within a 2D world. But technically speaking, it wasn't isometric. It was Cavalier Oblique. He comes up with that engine largely due to the game's XCOM and Crusader No Remorse, other isometric games that are coming out at this time, turn-based strategy games that are in an isometric view. That's kind of all the rage at this exact moment. Yes, kids, there was an XCOM before XCOM. (laughs) Yes. They create just this little demo, which you can see because they actually included it on the Fallout disc when it shipped. So this is out there in the wild. We can put a link to a video of it in the show notes. It actually exists. They just made this little demo of a knight walking around in a field with the grass and the trees and whatnot. Because at this point, they're still thinking maybe they'll do a fantasy game. They still don't know exactly what it is, but a knight seems like a good thing to test out uh, character movement and whatnot within this world. So they make a knight, they make a little demo. Somewhere around here, because the timeline is a little hazy. I don't know if this is before they made the medieval knight demo, or at the same time they're making it, or after they're making it. It's not important, because this is all kind of happening at the same time in 1994. As he starts getting assets together, he decides, well, I've got to figure out what this thing is. He doesn't want to do that alone. He's not sure what he wants to make it, and so he kind of just advertises on the company bulletin board. He's like, hey, everybody, working on brainstorming ideas for new a new RPG, could use some help. If anyone wants to come to the rec room after work at 6 p.m., I'm going to have some pizza there, and we can have some pizza together, and we can brainstorm ideas for what this game can be. He thought that he might get as many as 20 people. You know, there's a lot of people at the company that like D&D, that like role-playing games. Interplay is already known for its role-playing games, like The Bard's Tale and Wasteland. So he figured at least 20 people, I mean, heck, even if nobody actually wants to brainstorm for the game, he figures they'll come for the free pizza. Provide people with food, especially gamers. Exactly. So he thought he'd get 20 or 30. Well, only about five or six people show up, as it turns out. These five or six people basically become the core team that starts to build out the real concept of Fallout, and they will very soon afterwards officially join the team as it begins to expand. There's about six months of Tim Kaine just doing his own thing. There's about six months of him doing his thing with the two Jasons and figuring out the basics of the engine and all of that. After that, the team starts growing. After about another six months, the team expands to 15 people, some of whom are the people that are attending these informal brainstorming sessions that, as I said, started occurring even before they were officially on the team. So this is the point where the people that kind of start becoming important to the design of the game come in. One of those is the first person to be the actual lead designer on the game, an individual by the name of Scott Campbell. Scott Campbell was one of the many employees that went the tester route to get into Interplay that I had mentioned before. After he'd graduated from high school, he was working at an Egghead Software uh, computer retail chain in 1991. He was friends with an individual by the name of Jeremy Barnes, who was friends with another individual by the name of Chris Taylor. Chris Taylor had gotten a job at Interplay as a tester because he was friends with a guy named Fergus Urquhart who was friends with somebody else who got him a job as a tester. Like, so much of the mid-90s, late-90s Interplay staff, many of whom then went on to uh, form Obsidian with Fergus Urquhart later on, so many of them came in through this kind of, I knew a guy who knew a guy who was a tester, and they needed testers desperately at the beginning of the 1990s because they were publishing themselves for the first time. You know, when you're a developer for somebody else, 
the somebody else takes care of that. When they were making Bard's Tale and Wasteland and whatnot for Electronic Arts, Electronic Arts took care of the testing. They didn't have to have testers at Interplay. Now they need testers. So they're just hiring like mad. They can't keep up with demand. Chris Taylor got a job as a tester through Fergus Urquhart. Jeremy Barnes gets a job as a tester because he becomes friends with Chris Taylor. Scott Campbell also becomes friends with Chris Taylor because he knows Jeremy Barnes. And he actually starts hanging out at the Interplay offices a little bit to play, uh, especially Warhammer 40K. They really played everything there. Chris, uh, Scott, and Jeremy were all big into Warhammer 40K, in addition to D&D and everything else as well. And remember, kids, in GURPS, you can have it all. You can have a space marine versus a wizard shooting fireballs while you have some colonial redcoats fighting on valiantly as they were all teleported together to the same spot. Yeah, I mean, sure. Though this Warhammer 40k stuff really doesn't have anything to do with GURPS or even really anything to do with Fallout so much. It's just that this is how all of these people got together. I don't know. That big metal armor suit you always see in Fallout is very Warhammer Space Marine-esque. <laughs> Maybe a little bit, sure. But there were also some other very big aesthetic influences on some of that stuff as well that wasn't Warhammer. Scott Campbell gets to know Interplay because of this, and he's not quite sure what he wants to do with his life, and so Jeremy's like, hey, come get a job at Interplay. Scott's like, fine. He wasn't so sure he wanted to get a job in software, but he wanted something, so fine. So he actually comes in and applies to be an artist. He fails the test, doing up a drawing in a certain amount of time at Deluxe Paint, because he just didn't know the tools well enough. So he kind of flunked that, and as he's walking out, his friend Jeremy's like, out it go, and he's like, eh. And so Jeremy's like, hey, come on, come with me. And he goes to the head of testing. He's like, hey, this guy needs a job as a tester. And it's like, fine, yay, you're a tester now. So Scott Campbell came on as a tester, but then started moving on into other design work, again, as the company was growing rapidly. He becomes kind of the first lead designer on Fallout. The other person, Chris Taylor himself, who had also become an important designer and would take over as lead designer on Fallout after Scott Campbell leaves the company, actually, also comes to the brainstorming sessions and starts pitching in. Another very important person that comes, who really takes a lot of the lead in defining the aesthetic of the game, is Leonard Boyarski. Leonard was actually a true trained artist. He had gone to college at Cal State Fullerton, where he got a bachelor's degree in illustration. Then he uh, got himself another degree in fine art at the Art Center College of Design. So he was actually trained in art school, which is probably a little unusual for artists in the video game industry at this time, only because everything is growing up kind of haphazardly. After he got out of art school, he was having trouble finding a job. Now, some of his buddies in art school that had graduated a little before him, they were a little older, they had ended up becoming contractors for Buena Vista software. Buena Vista was an arm of Disney, Walt Disney. It was uh, originally created, I think, as a distribution arm for stuff that they didn't want, you know, the Disney image all over. Buena Vista Software was starting up one of the many times that Walt Disney uh, started an interactive division that didn't go anywhere. And he had friends working there, so he kind of hooked up with them, and uh, they didn't actually get him a job on a Buena Vista game, but they were also working with another developer called Quicksilver. Quicksilver needed an artist, so he did contract work for Quicksilver, Then that game ended up being canceled, but then he was able to get on a Buena Vista game called Unnatural Selection, and then after that game was done, he was having trouble finding work again. Well, Quicksilver, I don't think the game that he was working on, but just generally, Quicksilver also worked with Interplay. So he got to know the Interplay people a little bit because of his contract work with Quicksilver. It's all of these, I knew a guy who knew a guy kind of things, getting these people together. Leonard then went to the art director at Interplay and was like, hey, I need a job. 
And so it's like, fine. Yeah, we could use more artists. Congratulations, you're hired. So Leonard joined Interplay around 1992. All these people are joining at the very beginning of the 1990s when the company is expanding a lot. Leonard did work on Stonekeep, as so many of them did. When Stonekeep was finally released, he saw that in the credits, he was credited as a lead artist on it. Now, nobody had ever told him he was a lead artist, but he was credited in Stonekeep as a lead artist. So he's kind of like, okay, fine, I'm a lead artist now. Now I want to be a lead artist on Tim's game. It's like, okay, fine, you're the lead artist on Tim's game. Now, this was after the brainstorming started. Like I said, all of these people started as brainstormers, just coming together informally, having pizza after work, uh, have pancakes at this one restaurant a lot after work, just getting together after work, brainstorming on this game, because it's all unofficial. They're all still working on other projects, including Stonekeep, and their producers, their associate producers, their leads, whatever, on those other games won't let them go to join Tim's game. So it's all unofficial at first, but they do end up joining Scott Campbell as the lead designer, Leonard Boyersky as the lead artist. Jason, like I said, is kind of the main technical artist. He's actually on the game, officially, unlike the others. Another associate assistant kind of guy, Scott Everts, is coming to these brainstorming sessions. He would become the principal level designer on the game once it got more official. But it's all starting in these brainstorming sessions. What goes on in these sessions? Well, they're trying to figure out what this game's going to be, other than just GURPS. They think about fantasy for half a minute, but they're like, no. There's too much fantasy out there. There's already Ultima and Wizardry and Bard's Tale and Might and Magic. On and on and on. And Stonekeep. And Stonekeep. The gold box games, the D&D games from SSI. I mean, there's just, there's too many. Okay, let's not do fantasy. Let's really take advantage of the GURPS thing. Let's have this crazy time travel game where you end up going back and you kill the monkey or the ape that uh, evolved into humans, and so now there are no humans, and you end up in the future, which is ruled by dinosaurs because there's no humans, and you have to go to the past and fight wizards, and you have to correct the timeline, and let's do it. Let's do a GURPS everything and really take advantage of that GURPS system. Scott Campbell puts together a script for that. I mean, with input from other people as well, but Scott Campbell's the lead designer. He puts together a script on that. Probably not officially the lead designer yet, but it doesn't matter. The timeline is hazy because it's, you know, a lot of this was unofficial work. They get really excited about this and they start showing it to people. And Tim's basically told by another producer, you can pitch this, but it ain't going to happen. This is never going to happen. And it's not just that it was so off the wall. A lot of it comes down to things like budget. You know, a lot of the games in this time period and the way this game is going to be, they're tile-based games. When you have a tile-based game, the thing that makes that efficient is that you're able to reuse tiles over and over and over again in different places. If you're doing a game that takes place in prehistoric times and medieval times and the future and the present, that's a lot of different environments that are all going to need their own unique tile set that will not be reusable in other time periods. Also, the game had like 30 acts. Fallout as a chip had three acts. This time travel game had something like 30 acts. It was too much content. It would have been too many assets. It was unmakeable. Then it was probably going to be so bizarre that it would be hard to sell it to people. It's almost like you got 10 games in one. It's really, really long. You don't have any kind of overarching theme or focus. And that's actually something I've noticed that seemed to be the biggest problem with a lot of opening games. I'm not sure if you Mm -hmm. actually experienced this yourself. It's almost like I get thrown into an open world game after the little intro whatever. Yeah, I'm invested in the story here. Great. Proceed on and open world game. Yeah. Okay, how do I continue that story if I wanted to, really? Or it's such an oblique, way off in the distance thing, I don't even see a path between me and the Tower of Plot 50 leagues away. 
Or suddenly there's 50 exclamation points around you because there's 50 side quests waiting for you in just this one starter area. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, that, that kind of thing can be overwhelming and can cause one to kind of lose focus and almost panic and shut down in an open world context. That's probably why, at least for me, I do not actually like open world games. Mm-hmm. I can enjoy this whole freedom of movement thing, but I want to have something focusing my attention. I want something that's going to lead me on to a story or something. That's actually probably my biggest issue with, say, World of Warcraft mm-hmm. and a lot of other MMOs. It's like it's so open that I just go, okay, yeah, this has like little side quest, interesting story bit, but I'm not invested in this. Yeah, it's an interesting thing, but I'm just clicking stuff. I don't care why I'm clicking stuff. Okay, I spent 50 bucks. I'm done. That's why you play Final Fantasy XIV instead. Exactly. Narrative. So, yeah, it was just too ambitious. Okay, fine, we're not going to do that. Well, what are we going to do then? They liked all the alien stuff still. So they kind of got to thinking, why don't we just focus in on the alien part of that? Because there were aliens in the old version. Aliens have kind of invaded Earth. They've conquered all of Earth, and most humans are enslaved, but there's like this one sanctuary. It's not a vault, but this is getting in the direction of, that's kind of part of how they got to the vaults in the end. It's not a vault yet, but there was like this one city that is free of alien occupation, and so you end up in that one city, and you're doing the story starting from there. That's probably the really big XCOM influence there. Exactly. That's what I was just about to say. Several of them, uh, Tim Kaine, Scott Campbell, several of them were in love with XCOM. So there was a very XCOM vibe to this as well. I mean, it was going to be an RPG. It wasn't going to be like XCOM where you're base building and building squads and doing research and all of that. It was still going to be an RPG. But there were definitely some XCOM vibes in the way they were doing this one. They decided that, nah, let's not do that either. Interplay's doing Star Trek games. We may be getting a little too close to the Star Trek-y thing. Let's not do that. Okay. At this point, and it's, it's hard to say who exactly, because everyone's collaborating, everyone's brainstorming. But certainly at this point, Leonard Boyarsky, and he may not have been the only one. I think Scott Campbell was also pretty gung-ho on this. It, it, I think it was probably both of them. Both became kind of gung-ho on the idea of doing a post-apocalyptic game. Big, big fans of Mad Max. They're like, let's do post-apocalyptic. And then, you know, Scott Campbell even, you know, beyond that was like, and you know what, if we're doing post-apocalyptic... Let's make a new Wasteland game. Let's make GURPS Wasteland. Tim Kaine had never played Wasteland, funnily enough. You know, he goes and plays some Wasteland, and he's blown away by it. He's like, oh, yeah, this is awesome. Let's do that. And he, he especially loved the conundrum of that thing with the boy and his dog. I mean, he really liked that. He's like, yeah, let's make this game. He was a fan of the Ultima games, but one of the things that he didn't really like about the later Ultima games was the rigidity of the morality system. He liked the fact that the game tracked your behavior and that your past actions could have future consequences, but he didn't like the fact that you were required to be virtuous. There was no dark path, and there was no ambiguous path, gray path, where you're sometimes doing good, sometimes bad. It was just a strict, you need to be the virtuous avatar. So even though he liked Ultima, he kind of didn't like that straitjacket. And he loved that puzzle with the boy and the dog where it was hard to tell what the right answer was. It it isn't even about just being able to be evil. This isn't even about having a morality system like, say, Knights of the Old Republic, where you have light side, dark side, or uh, Mass Effect, where you have Paragon Renegade. 
he loved that the choice was not clear-cut what you should do, that there wasn't necessarily a right or a wrong, a good or an evil, or maybe you did the evil thing, but you did it for expedient reasons, not for evil reasons. He loved the ambiguity of that. So he became very gung-ho about this as well, and all of them were gung-ho about this. So they were like, yeah, let's do a post-apocalyptic game. That's kind of how they got started down that path. And it's a good thing that they got away from the fantasy very quickly, because around the time that all of this brainstorming was going on, again, everything is kind of vague in timeline. They may not have settled on the post-apocalyptic setting yet. Who knows? In late 1994, Interplay gets the Dungeons & Dragons license for Forgotten Realms and for Planescape. SSI had had the license. That relationship had kind of fallen apart. SSI was having trouble bringing its last games to market. The gold box engine was long in the tooth. There were trouble there. They didn't get the license. Interplay got the license. Now there was talk around the company that this little side project of Tim's here, we can't do that. We just got the D&D license. We need to make sure the D&D games sell. We can't have another game cannibalizing D&D sales. Marketing is like Brian, Brian Fargo. You have to cancel this game. So in late 1994, Fallout almost gets canceled. It's not Fallout yet. It's not even called Fallout yet, but we're calling it Fallout for expediency's sake. The game is almost canceled. Tim and and his people fought back. They're like, wait a minute, RPG sales don't work that way. And they even got some people in sales to back them up on this. You know, if there are two flight simulators on the market, which were big at the time, a person would buy one or the other. They wouldn't buy both because that's something that you invest, uh, you know, a whole lot of time in learning all the different aircraft and everything else. RPGs, Yeah, you may not buy two RPGs on the same day, but the thing is, an RPG is something that over the course of days, weeks, months, you solve. Then you're looking for another one. So it's like RPGs don't even cannibalize each other. You know, you'll buy one RPG, and then when you finish that RPG two months later, you'll buy another RPG. So there's no sales cannibalization. Plus, it's not going to be swords and sorcery. It's going to be a completely different kind of RPG. So they're not in the same zip code. It'll be fine. And as Tim Kane tells the story, he finally went and begged, literally begged Brian in his office not to cancel the game. At that point, they had demos. I'm not sure if it was the night demo or if they had a more advanced demo than that. By that time, there was a demo. Brian Fargo looked at it, played it. Brian's a gamer. He saw the appeal of it. And so he said, okay, fine. You can keep working on this game. It's fine. This can coexist with our D&D stuff. Go out and make your game. The only reason I can think of sales even having a leg to stand on is, like you said, if it was also a fantasy game. Right. Because I can see someone coming at this and going, okay, I'm coming for a new RPG. Ultima, Wizardry, Fallout, the fantasy game. Let's see Ultima. I'm taking that. They know. go with the ones that they understand. While Fallout, by going with the post-apocalyptic sci-fi theme, from what I recall from back then, as far as RPGs go, a genre that was not high fantasy and an RPG was actually a novelty and actually, at least in my case, would incline me to go, you know, I want something different. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. They get a reprieve and the game is allowed to keep going. At this point, they know they're going post-apocalyptic. They're starting to set in place a few other things. So they're starting to draw a few influences from different places. They know they want some tactical kind of strategy-based combat and gameplay. That plays well with GURPS. That plays well with other things. They're big fans of XCOM, which has that. Crusader No Remorse comes along in 1995. They're big fans of that. Those two games also kind of cement this Cavalier Oblique projection that they're using, this pseudo-3D. 
They experiment with polygons for objects within this world, but it's just too much of a render load. At this period of time, it's not very practical, so they end up going with sprites. They're very influenced by Crusader No Remorse, especially with the look and feel of the game world, and also with the decision to do a full 640 by 480 resolution with 256 colors, which was a big deal at the time. There were not many games that had gone 640 by 480, especially with that amount of colors. Crusader really influenced that, because Crusader was one of the first big hit games to go that route. You know, they wanted to look as nice as Crusader did. All of this kind of stuff's kind of coming together. There are definitely a few touchstones. Wasteland is a big touchstone, because they're going to make this a sequel to Wasteland. Exciting. A few other touchstones. The book Canticle for Leibowitz which is a very famous post-apocalyptic book. Kind of one of the main themes of A Canticle for Leibowitz is how, in a post-apocalyptic society, technology from the long, long ago—I mean, they didn't call it the long, long ago. I'm just calling it that. Technology from the long, long ago would be revered almost as sacred. Now, we're not talking about the whole Arthur C. Clarke thing where technology to any primitive society is magic. I mean, they know it's technology. But because it's something that can't be made anymore, that's very rare and is ancient and precious, that these would come to be venerated almost as sacred objects. So that's a a large part of where the Brotherhood of Steel, which you were talking about with their big armor. Not that the big armor comes from Mechanical for Leibowitz, but the idea of an organization that reveres old technology and almost worships old technology. The idea of the Brotherhood of Steel kind of comes from A Canticle for Leibowitz. It also comes from the original Wasteland as well, which was almost certainly also drawing some influence from the uh, uh, Canticle for Leibowitz. But there was an organization in Wasteland, these monks at this place called the Guardian Citadel in Wasteland, the kind of revered technology. And so Scott Campbell, who was big into Wasteland, was also drawing on that in the creation of the Brotherhood of Steel. He wanted them to be a little less douchey than the Guardians in Wasteland were because he wanted it to be a faction the players could join. But that was kind of the other genesis for this organization. They're influenced by that. They were also inspired by the book I Am Legend and the movie The Omega Man that was based on the book I Am Legend, which is about a guy who believes he's the last human on Earth. It's the isolation, the idea that you're kind of the last normal person, because they developed this idea of the vault, which, again, comes from a lot of post-apocalyptic stuff. But the story and movie A Boy and His Dog is a lot of the influence for the idea of vault dwellers and people surviving a nuclear apocalypse by being in these isolated shelters and safe spaces. So A Boy and His Dog kind of inspires that. And then I Am Legend and Omega Man kind of inspire the feeling of isolation. Because the player character that you end up with in the game is a dweller in one of these vaults where a small percentage of humanity was able to get into before the nuclear apocalypse occurred. Then what happens is that the water purifying chip in your vault breaks down, and so somebody has to go out into the big scary world because they don't have any replacements. I Am Legend has this character who's kind of alone in the world, and they drew inspiration on that for you being this vault dweller who now has to go out into this strange world. And even though there are people in this world, they're very different from you and, of course, sometimes mutated and and other stuff like that. So they're drawing on that for the sense of isolation. The television miniseries The Day After, which uh, was hugely impactful in the 1980s. 
like hugely. It apparently even changed like Ronald Reagan's own approach to nuclear brinksmanship. I mean, it was kind of a big deal at the time, pretty forgotten now. It was a movie about the aftermath of uh, nuclear exchange between the United States and the Soviet Union. One of the things it depicted was really how fast civilization would collapse after a nuclear attack. It is surprising how fast civilization will collapse with certain vital infrastructure going out. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Arguably, we are less able to handle certain collapsings now than we were 20, 30, 40 years ago. Just think of your own day in life. If you were without power for, let's say, a week, how much chaos that would really do. Imagine your entire city, your entire state is without power for a week. Yep. After three or four days, I guarantee you there will be riots. <laughs> Absolutely. You want a case of that? Look at Hurricane Katrina and what happened in New Orleans. Absolutely. They're drawing on all these sources to kind of do this uh, post-apocalyptic thing. And then, of course, Mad Max being an absolutely huge, huge, huge influence. They're developing the story of vault dwellers and you know the Brotherhood of Steel, all of this. They decide that they're going to set it in Southern California because Wasteland was set in Nevada around Las Vegas and whatnot. And so they wanted a setting that would be near the original game so that they could maybe share some characters and whatnot, but they didn't want to be in the same places as the original game. So they set it in Southern California. You know, you're going to be a desert ranger at first because, you know, those were the heroes of the first game. All of this is coming together and then there's a problem because Interplay doesn't have the rights to Wasteland. Electronic Arts has the rights to Wasteland. Oops. Yeah, because even though it's an Interplay game, Electronic Arts published it. They own the rights, not just to the game, but to the name. And they even made a sequel that, without Interplay that was sad and depressing, and nobody liked it. It's actually not Interplay's IP, so uh, Brian Fargo negotiates, tries to get EA to give him the license back, and they won't do it. You know, obviously the reasons why are all just speculation, but a lot of people at Interplay do believe that it was in part because EA was still salty that Interplay went off and published on its own. That very well may be. There are other concrete examples of Electronic Arts playing hardball with people that leave the Atlantic Arts uh, stable. It's a believable story. I'm not saying it's a true story, because there isn't full confirmation of that. But for whatever reason, EA, even though they're not exploiting the Wasteland IP at all, they refuse to give it up. Well, shoot. Well, then we'll make our own post-apocalyptic world with... Blackjack and hookers. And yeah, that's more Fallout too. but that's not important. The important thing is they realize that, of course, even though they have the rights to Wasteland, they don't have the rights to the very concept of post-apocalyptic world, so we'll make our own new setting. So that's when they switch to the Vault Dweller, and they keep it in Southern California where they were already setting it, and they start coming up with more and more of their own original stuff and just completely divorce it from Wasteland. So it'll be a spiritual successor now to Wasteland, but it won't be an actual successor to Wasteland. But Alex, everyone wants to know, including me, who came up with the 1950s aesthetic? I'm glad you asked, because we're just about to turn our attention to that. At this point, with GURPS Wasteland nobody, no longer being a thing, we instead get Vault 13, a GURPS post-nuclear role-playing game. Because we're still going to be GURPS, we're still all of that. Somewhere in here, and again, because the timeline is fuzzy, I don't know if it's before or after they couldn't do Wasteland anymore. 
but there's a good chance it was after just because, you know, they would have probably been keeping with a Wasteland aesthetic if they had gotten the Wasteland license. Leonard Boyarsky decides that it would be super cool to do this 1950s aesthetic, and he's not quite sure where the idea came from. Like, he's racked his brain for it. I haven't interviewed him, but other people have. He's racked his brain. He's not quite sure. It literally came to him in the car one day while he was driving. He thinks a big part of it is at the time he was reading the uh, graphic novel Hard Boiled by Frank Miller, which was a sci-fi noir kind of thing. And so that had some of this aesthetic in it. He thinks that was probably a big part of the influence. Just in general, even aside from that, there was a real tradition of science fiction in the 1950s in the so-called kind of B-movie genre. Now, because we are all fans of tangents at They Create Worlds, we're going to talk about exactly why there was this sci-fi explosion in the 1950s and what exactly we mean by B-movies anyway. I know you and I know the modern definition of a B-movie, and I'm sure our listeners mostly do too, which is just a movie that is kind of low-budget, cheap, schlocky, not-ready-for-prime-time kind of deal. There's actually a history to the whole concept of the B-movie. When cinema was experiencing its first golden age in the 1920s, in the silent film era, movies were a lot shorter than they are today. Movies may only be half an hour, 45 minutes, an hour long. The movie theater experience wasn't just about going to a single feature film like it is today. You would have shorts. You would have little vaudevillian-type variety things. You would have cartoons. You would have newsreels. You would have all of these other things building out the movie-going experience. If you've ever seen the movie Roger Rabbit, you actually have a scene that shows this. You have Eddie Valiant Mm -hmm. in a movie theater. There's sort of a little cartoon that's shown. They're all happy. And now the news comes up, and Roger Rabbit's like, Oh, the news! I hate the news! That's it! (laughs) That's the connection! I love that movie. We all love this movie. (laughs) It's something that could never happen today. Well, you know, the I mean, there was something similar that just happened with the Rescue Rangers movie on Disney+. Plus. Check it out. I'll have to check it out. (laughs) That is an example of it, where you did have in the 40s, 50s, 30s, maybe a little bit of the 60s, where you had movie theaters as a major venue for entertainment news. People didn't have television. Think about that. Television didn't really become prolific till the 60s. Really the 50s, but yeah. But even then, I mean, arguably, people aren't going out of their way to buy it. You're getting your news from movie theaters. You're doing double features and other things. I think that's probably why there's still a tradition in drive-ins of doing double features. Absolutely. You would do two, three movies in one night and maybe some little shorts in there. That's why every now and then you might see a animated show like Encanto that would have something with... Uh, little shorts between or before the movie. It's a rare thing to see today, but it's always nice when you do. Absolutely. So, you know, in, in the 20s, it was, you know, a feature film and then these newsreels and shorts and whatnot. That was fine until the Depression hit and talkies hit. And with talkies, production costs were much higher. And with the Depression, people's incomes were much lower. So there was a a morphing away from this kind of variety show aspect of it, and movie theaters started to offer double features, like you just mentioned. Two movies for the price of one. Because again, these movies were probably no more than an hour in length. Movies were shorter back then. 
So it would be like going to just one movie today. The double feature system started to get people into the theaters. But you see, another thing that was prevalent in this time period is the film studios also owned movie theater chains. They would force, in a system called block booking, the film studios would force the theater chains and the theater owners to take all of their movies. Like, if you want our new, exciting movie that everyone wants to see, you also need to book in your theater these other two or three movies that no one's really excited about, but we've made them and now we need to make money on them, which means you need to show them. So they used this block booking system, and the movie theater chains couldn't really resist because the movie studios themselves also owned movie theater chains. So the movie theaters couldn't say to the studios, well, you need us to show your movies, so if you want your A movie to be seen in theaters, then you're going to give us your A movie and not give us all your crap, too. Movie studio could just say, that's fine, then we'll only show our A features in our own movie theaters, and your theater's not going to get them. They had a monopoly. So they could play hardball like that. Because they were kind of forced to take these substandard pictures as well, they would book them in double features with the movies that people actually wanted to see. So the B movie, just like the B side of a record, was the second movie of a double feature. You had the A movie and the B movie. But the B movie would usually be a substandard movie because it was these other films that they were forced to take. So that's why you got a connotation of B movies being cheap and shoddy and schlocky. Because of this system, where they were showing multiple features, it also gave the ability for smaller movie studios, not the majors, to also put out movies that then would be shown as part of these double features. At the time, the motion picture industry was governed by something called the Hayes Code, which was a very, very, very restrictive code of what could be shown in movies. You couldn't have sex and drugs and excessive violence and crime can't pay and all of these restricted things that kept movies very tame for the most part. The regulators didn't watch the smaller studios as closely as they did the majors. You would start getting these other kinds of films, slightly darker, racier, more violent, though still tame by today's standards, movies being created by these B-movie houses in genres like gangster films or film noirs or that kind of stuff, which really flourished in kind of the 30s and 40s. Flash forward to the 1950s, and there are some big things happening in the world, like we have atomic bombs now. We have a space race with the Soviet Union, between the United States and the Soviet Union. There gets to be an obsession with nuclear weapons, nuclear radiation, and all the ways that can go horribly wrong. And there gets to be an obsession with aliens from outer space, because we figure now that we're going into space, you know, we're going to discover the aliens or the aliens are going to discover us. There's a lot of fear and trepidation around all of this. These B-movies kind of start becoming a realm for playing out some of these fears in movies like Them, which involves irradiated giant ants attacking. I love that movie. (laughs) Or Plan 9 from Outer Space or Forbidden Planet, movies that depict encounters with aliens that are not altogether peaceable. You know, Godzilla is born in this period in Japan, and Godzilla is, again, a movie that deals with nuclear testing and how nuclear testing is is caused Godzilla to get all cranky. You know, there's a lot of movies about this. But Alex, Godzilla saved the world now. So there's a lot of movies in the 1950s 
that are playing on these fears in this kind of B-movie realm. The B-movie kind of starts to vanish by the end of the 50s, both because the uh, Supreme Court rules that's an antitrust violation for the movie uh, studios to also control movie theaters, and so they force them to divest themselves of their movie theater holdings, which means they don't have the leverage anymore to force movie theaters to take their lesser movies. But also television is coming in, and that's taking away from people being interested in seeing, you know, we can see crappy stuff at home. We'll only go for the good stuff on the big screen. Made for TV movie, kid. <laughs> right. So the B-movie thing starts to fall away, but there's still a lot of them in the 50s, and they're really obsessed with this idea of technology and the space race and nuclear weapons and post-nuclear apocalypse and alien invasion, all of this stuff that plays directly into Fallout. There's a certain aesthetic to those movies because they're viewing the future through the lens of their times. You know, electronics were still big and bulky, so the electronics in these movies tended to be big and bulky. The kind of styles that were present in interior decorating and stuff, lots of clean lines and minimalism and and all of this stuff leaches into their ideas of the future because they're taking what they do in the present and transposing it to the future. There's this very specific aesthetic to 1950s sci-fi, which was so prolific. Leonard Boyarsky just thought it would be a hoot if, in their world, they kind of had this stuck in the 50s thing, like, what if this nuclear apocalypse happened, you know, in the 50s or whatever? The nuclear apocalypse didn't actually happen in the 50s in the Fallout universe. It happens in like 2077 or something like that. But it's kind of the idea of what if technology had only progressed to the point of like what the 1950s saw, and that's the point where everything was eradicated. The rest of the team came around to that, and so they kind of introduced this very 50s sci-fi aesthetic. One of the things they decided is, well, you know, in the 50s, there really weren't transistors yet. The transistor had been invented in the late 1940s, but it was only starting to really permeate technology, you know, by the end of the 1950s. So they're like, wouldn't it be cool if everything was vacuum tubes? And it's like, yeah. And of course, that fits in really well, too, because vacuum tubes, unlike transistors, wouldn't be susceptible to, to EMP shocks in the, in the same way, EMP blasts. It would provide a more a plausible way for why there is still some functioning technology after the nuclear event if it's vacuum tube technology. So they decide that, you know, there's lots of vacuum tubes and everything, and there's 50s aesthetics. They create the Vault Boy mascot character thing that has this very 50s mascot feel to them. By combining all of these things, a canticle for Leibowitz, the Omega Band, Hard Boiled, a boy and his dog, Forbidden Planet. Mad Max, on top of all of that, you know, they, they kind of end up with this very unique and interesting aesthetic. That's the aesthetic as Fallout. And, you know, kind of another thing going in with this 50s vibe is, you know, they're trying to figure out currency. And Scott Campbell, the designer, he's like, well, you know, it needs to be something that can be found lying around, but isn't like super common. It can't be leaves. They can't use leaves for currency. It has to be something that isn't too complex to put together because it's post-apocalyptic society. And he was thinking, well, maybe bullets would be currency or something like that. But then he's like, nah, I don't know. So he just kind of hit on bottle caps. Uh, he thought it fit this vibe very nicely. It's something that, you know, was distinct in shape and are common enough that people could have them, but not so common that you would just find one in a field someplace. And so uh, bottle caps became the currency which is something that's persisted in the game to this day. So they're just coming up with all these interesting, quirky ideas. They're designing levels. They're laying out the main story. Scott Campbell is mostly involved with developing the, the main story. 
It involves, like I said, having to get a chip, but then once you get the chip, you realize there's bigger things going on in the world, that people are being turned into super mutants that are being experimented on, and it turns out that there's this individual called the Master, who is creating his own army of super mutants as a way to unify and purify the human race. He has kind of a fake cult set up, a church set up to, you know, lure people in, and then he exposes them to the virus thing that he's working on and turns them into super mutants, and he's building this army. So then you have to stop the super mutants as well. So there's this other story on top of the story. Leonard Boyarsky is really creating the vibe. He and Jason Anderson are getting most of the art in the game. There are other people as well, but they're the big ones. Scott Everts is working on level design. Everything's kind of gelling. Everything's exciting. They start coming up with the lore. They decide that they're going to get real actors to do some of this stuff. They get Ron Perlman, who they're going to have do the introductory movie. But Tim Kaine decides kind of last minute that what they have written isn't really that great. So literally during an episode of The Simpsons, he just decides to rewrite everything. And like in half an hour's time, that classic opening monologue that starts with war, war never changes, is written at the last minute, the day before Ron Perlman's going to be recording. So they get the movie done, everything is happy, everything is awesome, and then Steve Jackson does one of his periodic reviews of the product. You see, one of the things that they really wanted to focus on as well was ultraviolence. Now, they didn't want to be gratuitous for gratuitous sake, but they wanted this to be a harsh, realistic, post-apocalyptic world that was going to be a violent world. They were riffing off of Wasteland, and Wasteland had some ultraviolence in places for the same reason that just, it's harsh out there in the the post-apocalypse. So they were going to push the envelope on violence. You know, when there are critical hits, things are going to really, you know, blow up, and you're going to be able to set people on fire with flamethrowers, and, you know, there's going to be some intense stuff going on. Early on, they told Steve Jackson this. They weren't leaving him in the dark about this, and Steve Jackson was like, okay, fine, that's great, you know, violence, that's fun, go right ahead. But then that opening movie that I talked about gets done. And there's a scene in the opening movie where people are being executed in the streets, you know, put on their knees and executed back of the head in the streets. Even though Steve Jackson had indicated earlier that he was okay with violence, this in particular went too far for him. He didn't like it. He wanted it removed. As the license holder to the system they're using, GURPS, I mean, he has the right to demand this kind of stuff. So they're in a crisis and they're like, okay, what do we do? We're not dumping the movie, but do we have like a censored and an uncensored version? And we give the player the choice before the movie plays, whether they get the censored or the uncensored version, you know, as a kind of way to keep them happy. I mean, is there a way to work around this? Well, while they're still trying to figure that out, Steve Jackson has another exception to things. He hates the Vault Boy. Hates, hates, hates Vault Boy. Vault Boy's everywhere because they've decided to make little Vault Boy cartoons for all of the different skills and everything. He tested great with Interplace testers. Everyone loved him. Everyone loved Vault Boy, this kind of happy-go-lucky, carefree 50s cartoon mascot in the middle of this dark post-apocalyptic universe. It created a a good feeling of humor because they wanted there to be humor in it, but they didn't want slapstick. They wanted the humor to come out in kind of dark humor, kind of ironic kind of ways. And so Vault Boy being used in this manner was part of that. So they considered this central to the aesthetic of the game. And Steve Jackson was like, no, Vault Boy comes out or GURPS comes out. The team was adamant. They were like, no, this is central. I mean, maybe we can work with the movie stuff, but Vault Boy is staying. 
Brian Fargo supported them and Brian Fargo said, okay, fine. Then if you're not going to let us uh, use the GURPS license with this, I guess we're not using the GURPS license. Thank you, Steve Jackson Games. Good day. I'm really surprised he doesn't like the Vault Boy. Everyone's surprised by it. Did he ever say why he objected to it? No, I don't think they they necessarily had a great sense of why, but he did. He objected to it. You know, here, when the game is over a year into development, they lose their license to the GURP system. Well, that's a problem, and that's a problem that could very well end the game, but it just so happens, thankfully, that they already have a solution mostly in place in-house. Because Chris Taylor, who I mentioned earlier, the tester-turned-game designer, who was also at the brainstorming sessions, who was one of the principal designers on the game, who shortly after this takes over as lead designer on the game after Scott Campbell leaves, when he was a kid in the 80s, had created his own little role-playing game system. Because he played D&D, and there comes a point when everyone who's interested in being a designer, who's also a fan of D&D, does their own version of I'm going to outdo D&D and do my own system. So in the mid-80s, he had created his own system called Medieval that had a lot of skill-based stuff in it. So it was kind of, sort of, if you squinted, already compatible with what they were doing with the GURP system. Chris Taylor, in like a marathon section, I think he did it in like two weeks or something like that, in a marathon session, re-engineered his system. Because it wasn't a perfect system. He never published it. It wasn't brilliant or anything, but it was a start. They had a starting point. Re-engineered his system and plugged it in to the game. And that's what became the special system, named for the attributes, because you had like strength, perception, whatever the others, charisma, intelligence. You could put all of those attributes together and they'd spell special. So they were able to come up with a new skill-based system overnight, which once again managed to save the project. Now it's just going to be Vault 13, no GURPS. Somewhere around here, again, the timelines are vague, but somewhere around here, Brian Fargo makes his two big contributions to the game because they're making demos, they're making playable builds. Brian Fargo, himself being a gamer, plays some of these, you know, the CEO. After playing them, he comes up with two pieces of feedback. First, he doesn't like the fact that all he gets at level ups are skills, skill points to put into skills. There needs to be something more. So they come up with the system of perks, which allow you to further customize your player. You know, you might be particularly good at killing things or particularly good at negotiating, and there are perks for all sorts of things, some of them even more silly or obscure than that. This was to replace the advantages system that was in GURPS. So perks, modern GURPS, 4th edition has perks, but I don't think that was a concept in 3rd edition. At the time, there was no such thing as perks in GURPS, so that was a safe term to use. It just so happens that GURPS later adopted that term for something. They adopted perks on Brian Fargo's suggestion as an additional way to level up. The other thing is somewhere around here, marketing objected to the title. Now, they called it Vault 13 because it stars a Vault Dweller, and the Vault Dweller's from Vault 13, and he's trying to save Vault 13. So, like, that all makes sense within the context of the story, but it tells nothing to the consumer. It's a meaningless title to try to sell it. So, marketing said you have to come up with something else. They were trying to come up with other titles, and they were all just felt kind of generic, and they didn't like any of them. And then Brian Fargo comes in after you know playing the game, a version of the game over the weekend, and just says, why don't you call it Fallout? Tim and Scott and all of them were like, that is so brilliant. Because it conveys that it's a post-apocalyptic game, you know, nuclear fallout. It also, you know, it's, you know, there's a lot of fallout. There's a lot of crisis. There's a lot of conflict in the game. It's like it works on several different levels. And it's evocative, and it's, it's different from any titles that are out there currently. So Brian Fargo gets credit for the name, turning it from Vault 13 to Fallout. 
So at this point, we kind of have the outlines of the game in place. Around this time, just after the Scott Campbell leaves, the main story is kind of fleshed out by this point. The aesthetic is known. The problem is the team has still not created a lot of content. They have the main plot. They've done a lot of the main plot content. They have the skill system in. They have the gameplay systems. They have a lot of stuff done, but the world is not populated yet. Now comes, you know, in 95 and into 96 comes the mad dash to just finish the game, put content in it. They decide as, you know, this is stuff they decide even before this, but they've decided all throughout this process that they want to make a game that is deep rather than wide. And this all goes back again to the way Tim Kaine loved how his campaigns that he would play with his interplay uh, friends and employees would turn out differently depending on who was playing them. It stems in part from, like I said, the open-ended nature of GURPS and the way that GURPS emphasizes things other than combat. The thing that they do during this that's really unique at the time that hadn't been done very much in role-playing games is they set out to make a true role-playing game that allowed you to proceed through scenarios in multiple different ways. Most past games, it came down to combat at the end. You may sometimes have some things you could do other than that, but it came down to combat in the end. Even in the Ultima games, where you had to also track down clues on where to go, it was still find the right person, use the right keyword with them to find your next destination, and also do some combat. You know, it was combat, combat, combat. The Gold Box games had all the D&D stats, they had charisma and all of that, but you didn't use it for anything. It was dungeon crawls, it was combat. That's all it was. It wasn't a full developed role-playing experience. Fallout was different. They made sure that at every point in the game, every quest, every puzzle that you needed to progress, main plots, side quests, etc., would have a fight path, a talk path, and a sneak path. So you could kill everybody, you could talk your way through, or you could sneak around obstacles and use stealth and use sabotage and, and all of this. They wanted to make sure everything could be played in these different ways. One character isn't going to be able to play it all those different ways, but you could prioritize with your character combat skills, diplomacy skills, charisma actually mattered, intelligence mattered for more than just spell slots. Not that Fallout had spells, but you know, that's what it normally mattered for in fantasy RPGs. Your dialogue choices would change based on your intelligence score. If you made your character really stupid, like put three points in intelligence, they would barely be able to have conversations with NPCs. It wasn't just that, you know, if you had higher intelligence, you could unlock more dialogue options to talk your way through things. It was also, if you were dumb as a box of rocks, your character acted dumb as a box of rocks. If you were a sneaky guy, you would steal things and you would sabotage things and you would wire things to blow up instead of just shooting everything. You could sneak around. And of course, there was a combat path. You could blow everything up if that's what you wanted to do. They also, which I intimated earlier, they wanted to get rid of that pure black and white morality stuff that inhabited games like Ultima. If you wanted to kill everyone in the game, you could. It wouldn't stop you from being able to complete the game either, you know, because shooting everyone was a valid way to get through. You could kill NPCs, the non-combat NPCs. You could kill the children, which got them in a little trouble and was a little controversial, especially in Europe, where they had to take that out. And then in Fallout 2, they had to take out killing children entirely. In the first game, you could kill children, and you'd get penalized for it. I mean, you'd get this bad trait that basically no one would want to deal with you because they'd see you as a monster. So it wasn't about allowing you to just revel in your darker side. There were consequences, but they weren't consequences that stopped you from beating the game. 
you know, in Ultima, you could technically be bad and there'd be consequences, but those consequences would actually block you from being able to unlock all the virtues and, and complete the game. Here, you could be mean and people wouldn't like you for it and you'd be a pariah, but you could play that character and you could still beat the game. They also made it open world. You could go anywhere from the start. You had your overarching mission objectives, but you could go anywhere. Initially, they actually had a time limit in the game because they wanted to keep you a little bit on track within the open world, so you had to complete it within a certain number of turns. It was highly controversial even within the company, and so they actually patched it out. They shipped with it in the game, but then patched it out immediately when the game came out, eliminated the time limit. Many of the towns would have multiple factions. There was one town that had a criminal faction, the law enforcement that was trying to clean up the criminal faction, and you could side with either one of them. Either one was valid to progress the game. The way the world ended up changed based on your choices. NPCs would remember what you did. The game would be different at the end, depending on what you did. Because they had all these choices, they decided to do this really unique thing with the ending. It wasn't just that you had like three, like you had the good ending, the bad ending, or whatever, like some games have. They did a slideshow with the ending that would tell you how all of these different people and communities you interacted with turned out as a result of your actions in the game. There were dozens of variables that came into play with your ending. The main overarching narrative ending was the same no matter what. If you stop the master and save the world, you're lauded as a hero by your vault, but because the vault dwellers are isolated and consider themselves pure and safe from the scary post-apocalyptic world, they're afraid that you've spent so much time outside that you've been tainted by your experiences and that the hero worship of you as a savior of the vault may lead to unacceptable changes in vault dweller society. So you're actually exiled at the end of the game. They actually choose a bittersweet ending. You save the world, but you can't go home. So that ending is always the same, but all the other parts of it are completely different depending on how you played the game. This was an unprecedented degree of freedom in a lot of ways. You see these influences. I mean, they're not the first game to do it, but you see these influences going forward in games like Deus Ex, for instance, that just a few years later really continued to grow this idea of the sandbox where you can get through levels in multiple ways where anything is possible kind of gameplay. And that's a kind of gameplay that still resonates today. Most open world games today give you multiple paths through a lot of the story. Not all of them even give you as much freedom as Fallout did, but they give you lots of freedom to approach challenges in different ways. Fallout's not the only game to do that. It's not even necessarily the first game to do that. But it was a big, important game that did that. It all goes back to GURPS, late-night gaming sessions at Interplay, and all of this stuff that the uh, people of the company were interested in, and this wasteland idea of not always knowing what the best solution is and never being able to please everybody. You can't just satisfy everyone in the game. If you side with the criminals in the one town, then the law enforcement and the innocent people in the town are, are overrun. If you side with the law enforcement, then the, you know, the criminal organization is destroyed. There's no middle ground where you can satisfy both. You may have to make a choice, and that choice is reflected in the ending that you get at the end of the game. They were getting reports of people that would immediately go back once they finished the game and play it again because they weren't happy with the ending that they got. So they immediately go back and make different choices. It was a game that really invited replayability, which was often not the case in RPGs at the time. I mean, you could technically go back through an RPG again and put your stats in different places, but the story of an Ultima game or a Wizardry game is going to basically play out the same way again. The variations are going to be in individual combat encounters or whatnot. They're going to be minor variations. Fallout, you could play it back-to-back 
and have those two playthroughs of the game be almost unrecognizable between each other. That was really something quite new at the time, quite bold and quite innovative. As they're running out of time at the end of the game, there are two final hurdles that they have to get over. It's been this long development. We're getting into 1996 now. Development started in 94, early 94. We're into 96 now. And there are two final problems that we have. The first is, during this period of time that this game has been in development, the RPG genre has really hit a rough spot. We talked about in our Ultima Trilogy of Trilogies how Ultima 8 had so many problems. We talked in our Sirtec episode how Wizardry hit a wall around Wizardry 6. We haven't talked about the Gold Box series at SSI, but in the early 90s, their series hit a snag. The main RPG series started having problems coping with this new technological world where graphics were getting more sophisticated, where gamers were craving more action, more real-time gameplay. The world of Wolfenstein 3D, Dune 2, and Doom seemed incompatible with the world of Ultima and Wizardry. So the RPG hit this period of just a couple of years. I mean, it was only the period about 93 to 96 or 97 that the RPG entered a fallow period. It wasn't a long period. But the RPG entered a fallow period, and people were questioning, is the RPG still relevant in a world of Doom and Warcraft? And then in 1996, a game came along that gave a partial answer to that question, and that game was Diablo. Diablo was not a pure RPG, but it was a roguelike, real-time action game with some stat building and loot progression, you know, similar to roguelikes. It was a massive seller, and it was real-time with multiplayer. So incorporating some of those things that were now hot in the age of first-person shooters that hadn't really been done in genres like RPGs before. So when Diablo hit, there was a big push from marketing to turn Fallout into a real-time multiplayer game. Now remember, this is a game that's been in development for over two years at this point. You're basically talking about a redesign from the ground up. You can keep the story, you can keep the aesthetic, but you're talking about redesigning the game from the ground up if you're making it real-time multiplayer. Obviously, the team was like, no, we can't do that. But it was a big battle for a while. They had to do feasibility studies. It took time away from creating the game because they had to do little feasibility studies and demos of, of what it might look like in real time as part of their campaign to finally just get marketing off their back and let them finish their darn game. So that was one big hurdle that further delayed things. The other one is that they just didn't have a lot of people. The team had expanded to about 15 but 15 was still a very small amount for all the scripting, all the design, all of the art, everything they had to do. Thankfully, they were saved because Interplay at this time, because it had been expanding so much, had decided to divisionalize. They were going to have a sports division that did sports games. They're going to have an educational division. And yes, they were going to have an RPG division. They created an RPG division within the company, which later, not at this point, but in 1998 would gain the name Black Isle very famous name for Baldur's Gate and Neverwinter Nights and all of this stuff. Once that division was created, the head of it, Fergus Urquhart, even though the Fallout game, because it was already long in development, wasn't placed under the RPG division, Fergus saw that they were struggling, and he was able to use his newfound clout as the head of the RPG division and the new resources he had as the head of a division to basically throw people at Fallout in 1996 and get it over the finish line. 
So the team doubles to about 30 people, and they just basically work very hard, and they get the thing done, and it finally releases in October 1997. So three and a half years after it started development, it's just one guy working on an engine all by himself. A team of 30 finally gets this game out the door, and you know what? It's a hit. It's a hit in the context of computer games at the time. So, you know, it sells in the hundreds of thousands. It doesn't sell in the millions. It's very successful within the context of that time. They immediately decide that they want a sequel, which marketing takes a lot more interest in this time. We're not going to talk about Fallout 2 today, but Fallout was virtually ignored by the powers that be, except for at critical moments like when they wanted it to suddenly be real-time. Fallout 2 would have the eyes of the whole company on it from the beginning, because Fallout was a hit, and now they need to follow up on that hit, especially because some of these moves that they've made in some of these other areas, like education and sports, have not panned out, and the RPGs are continuing to be the bread and butter of the company, and they really need them to do well. Fallout takes the world by storm. You know, it's not Diablo with its real time. It's not even Baldur's Gate with real time with pause, where, you know, Baldur's Gate, which comes out the next year from BioWare and Black Isle, is technically turn-based in the way the engine works, but you, the player, it feels like it's unfolding in real time, and then you just pause when you need to carry out orders. Fallout is not that. It is very turn-based. You get action points, and you get to, just like in kind of similar to GURPS, which, which it originally derived from, you know, you get to do a certain number of things in your turn until you run out of action points, and then you're done. So it plays out fully turn-based. So it's not quite that bold new future of real time, but it introduces that sandbox. It introduces open-endedness. It invites replayability. It's multiple ways to play the game. It's play the game in the way that fits your play style. These are all things that would help to revitalize and expand the RPG genre as the 90s and early 2000s go on. I mean, you can see that DNA in a lot of places. You can see that DNA in Baldur's Gate, Knights of the Old Republic, Planescape Torment. Then further on, of course, the Fallout series continues with Fallout 3. You can see it in Oblivion and uh, Skyrim. You know, you can see it all of those places. And the perk system that they came up with, Tim Kaine himself was told by people at Wizards of the Coast that the feat system in the third edition of Dungeons & Dragons was directly inspired in part by the perk system in Fallout. So this idea of in addition to just getting more hit points or more skill points or higher attributes or whatnot in an RPG when you level up, the whole idea of also getting these little something extras that you can choose in addition to your points. That's something that Fallout was a real pioneer of, and which Fallout helped to bring into the pen and paper space, not just into the video game space. For all of these reasons on how it was a pioneer in sandbox and choice and multiple paths through a game and actually making use of all of the skills, intelligence and charisma right alongside strength and dexterity, Fallout is a game that is worthy of remembrance today, even before you, of course, get into the fact that it's still a thriving series under Bethesda. Kind of amazing to think that such a well-beloved series actually had such a rocky, tenuous start that led to it almost being canceled on multiple occasions. Honestly, I would have thought a company that said, by gamers, for gamers, would have so much trouble with marketing. (laughs) You know, I don't think this game could get made today at a major studio. I mean, as an indie game, sure. But I don't think a major studio would make a game like this today. It's because Interplay still had some of that. You know, it was changing. It was becoming a big publisher in a growing industry. It was focusing more on licenses. It was becoming a little less by gamers for gamers. 
it had just enough of that DNA left in it. And it still had Brian Fargo at the head, who himself was a legitimate gamer. It had just enough of that left within the company that it was allowed to keep going and it was allowed to find its way, even through all the difficulties, even through all the near cancellations, and finally saw the light of day. I think it could have only happened at a company like Interplay that it was in this period of chaotic transition. I don't think it could happen at a major publisher in this day and age. It's definitely a game of its time, but a game that still resonates in our time because of all of its innovations. Quite the story of Fallout. Speaking of which... Absolutely. I think I finally got the door control open here. Let me check. Alright, I got the door open. What history are we going to bring to the Vault Dwellers as we prophesize history of video games? Well, Jeffrey, it's been a while since we've done anything with CoinOp. We've been doing a lot of console stuff. We've been doing a lot of computer stuff. They Create Worlds is about the entire tapestry of video game history, and we've been neglecting CoinOp for a long time, and it, and it feels like maybe we should return to that. One company that I think is a good company to illustrate kind of what was happening just at the end of the golden age of arcade games in the kind of 81, 82, 83 time period is uh, the company Centauri. They didn't last very long because the crash wiped them out, but they were a critical company in this period of transition between American developers and Japanese developers because the whole coin-operated video game apparatus had developed in the United States. All the early games were American games. The Japanese started getting more and more involved, and then, of course, Space Invaders hit, and suddenly Japanese games were all the rage, but they were still largely being brought in by American publishers. Centuri is an American company, but it kind of sits at this nexus where Japanese games were starting to be in demand and was a key company in getting some of these Japanese games in the United States, but then also is an object lesson in how the relationship with Japanese publishers was changing as these Japanese developers, publishers, started taking more control of their own destiny, and of course ultimately then did take control of their own destiny and started releasing their own games in the United States rather than going through American companies. Yeah, Centauri and its predecessor, Allied Leisure, which they're basically the same company, but they had some difficulties, so they reinvented themselves. That's an important company we haven't talked about. It's a company that we can certainly tell a story about a period in video game history through, which is also great when you can tie it into larger things. That sounds like a good topic for next time. Help me break into this other thing so I can get enough bottle caps so we can start playing some of these Centauri games. We might have to press these down in order to make them into metal slugs or something. But uh, <laughs> while we work on that, we'll see you next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com where we have links to some of the things that we discussed in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's book, They Create Worlds, The Story of the People and Companies That Shaped the Video Game Industry, Volume 1, can now be ordered through CRC Press and at major online retailers. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Our Twitter is TCW Podcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash they create worlds please help get the word out by leaving a review on your favorite podcasting service intro music is airplane mode by josh woodward found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode used under a creative commons attribution license outro music is bacterial love by roland music 
found at freemusicarchive.org, used under a Creative Commons attribution license.